Good morning. My name is Marty, and I was asked to read the scripture for today's uh, message from Pastor Chris. So would you all please stand, and we'll read together from Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came in, came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for this morning. Uh, what a privilege it is to, to be here gathered with your church. And we do acknowledge, Jesus, that we are incapable, incapable of so much, God, but you are so much bigger than us. And we ask, Lord, that whatever circumstance anybody in this room finds themselves in, that you'd step in, God, that you'd meet them in this place. We ask that your word this morning as we open it up and we devote this time to you, would do the work that you, um, that you have called it to do, Lord, and it would have power that could only come from you to actually pierce our hearts and change our lives. And so we submit this time to you, Jesus, and we pray that it be just used for the building up and the edifying of your church and that we would be stronger um, more devoted followers of Jesus as a result of coming together this morning and seeking you in your name. Amen. Awesome. Good morning. Every week, uh, the staff has kind of a little, uh, a little wager to see, is the 9 a.m. service going to be more lively or the 11? And you guys keep swapping back and forth every week. So we used to say, you know, the 9 was always more lively, and the 11 just seemed a little dead. And then last night, you flipped it on us, or last week, you flipped it on us. And so this morning's up for grabs, and I have like 50 bucks on the line. So if you could be really loud, thank you. I appreciate that. Awesome. Uh, we're going to be Matthew chapter 18, as Marty read for us this morning. There's a couple things that, as a pastor, I think terrify me. Uh, when it comes to sections of scripture like this. One is that if you're a guest in the room, you know, sorry, not sorry that you had to show up on this Sunday. Uh, it's such a gnarly passage. But the other thing is that I just almost get a pit in my stomach when I know that we're coming, we're, we're bringing a, a passage of scripture where there's mention of sin and there's mention of like quarreling in the church and 
division happening amongst believers. And the reason I get so sick to my stomach is because I know it's happening. I know it's amongst us. And I know that there's things that Jesus wants to deal with in us in order to make us a more unified and stronger church. And so as we dive into this this morning, bear with me. I know it's a pretty heavy passage, but it's also one that I think is really good for us to unpack. So Matthew 18, um, this passage also, as I was just studying this week, realizing it's such a timely passage. Like, it's not just divinely inspired, but it's actually divinely placed at the season that we find ourselves in, um, in the world, even as a nation, and even in our country, and in our city. And I don't think we could have picked a better time to be digging into this passage in fall of 21. In my lifetime, and I'm sure in you guys' lifetime, um, I can't remember a time when the culture in which we live was more full of factions and fighting than it is today. There's so much quarreling going on around, with us, around us. And I don't remember a time when there was so much us versus them, there was so much tribalism, like everything, everybody seems so divided these days. And you name it, it, it it's, it, it's bad right now, but it's probably going to get worse, right? We know that it probably doesn't get any better. And as sad as it is right now, the state of our, our country, the state of individuals, um, as sad as it is now, um, it's probably going to get worse. And I can't help as a pastor to feel just an incredible sense of opportunity for the church in these days. Um, there's a ton of opportunity. I had somebody uh, last week that was working on my house, and we were out in my front yard, and we got into this discussion, and the person was just complaining to me about everything in this world and everything that, um, you know, the, the, the world and how it's coming against Christians and the right versus left, and they were complaining about how bad it is. And probably 10 minutes into it, like, I stopped this person in the midst of the rant, and I just stopped, and I said, like, actually, we have an incredible opportunity right now. Like, we can take this as all negative. We can chalk it up to, you know, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But the reality is the church is brighter now, should be brighter now than she's ever been. There's more opportunity for the church today than ever before. They're literally, the days that we're living in are days that, that those that went before us prayed to see. Because Jesus is on the move. He's on the move. And we, the church, actually need to start telling a totally different story. And I'm convinced of that, that, that we have this tremendous opportunity right now as the church, that we need to tell a different story as it relates to our behavior, to tell a different story as it relates to our words, as it relates to our lives, um, as it relates to the way that we relate to one another, that there's a different story that our lives are, need to tell. And we have this incredible opportunity to live out a relational dynamic here in this church in 2021 in North Idaho in Coeur d'Alene. What an amazing opportunity. But we, we actually need to take advantage of this opportunity and pray that this opportunity we have is actually marked by compassion and humility. Because those aren't markers of those in this world. Those are markers of his church, humility and compassion. Not people that are full of harsh judgmentalism um, that we see taking place in the world, but people that are marked by courage, people that are marked by mercy and by grace and these characteristics that you just don't really see being presented by the world right now. And so what I wanna say and urge us as a church in this morning is that we've got to look different than the world around us. We have to. Like, what God has done in us, through us, for us, 
is so powerful and so amazing that it actually should transform us. We actually should be sort of living like, like we're swimming upstream. We don't quite fit in with the rest of the world. There's a bright spot here that doesn't exist anywhere else. But especially when that comes to relationship, like we should actually kind of hold the bar, set the bar as far as how relationship is dealt with, how tension in relationship is dealt with. But instead, you see the church becoming just as splintered as the world. And Jesus says in John 13, uh, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. And what is this that he's referring to? He goes on to say, by the way we love one another, that by this the world will know that you're my disciples, by the way that you love one another. And that's what he wants us to be known for. So this text is going to help us with that, I think. And the way we treat each other, the, the way we deal with our own pride issues, our, our own offensive behavior, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so this is sort of a tough passage. It's one that Jesus is like dead serious about. There's a reason it's so harsh and it sounds so gnarly because Jesus cares a lot about this. Um, because I, I believe that Jesus wants pride and Jesus wants arrogance and offensive behavior and a lack of humility to be eradicated from the community of faith. Like that just doesn't have its place here. That's not who he is and it's not who we are in him. And so all of chapter 18 in Matthew, Jesus is dealing with these relational dynamics within the church community. He's talking within disciples, within the believers, amongst the disciples. And I know when you first read it, you sort of think in this passage that Jesus is dealing with children, that this passage is just like somewhat about kids, that he's randomly talking about kids, but not really. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about Christians in the context of the church. And essentially, what Jesus is saying is that we need to get serious about how we see and treat people in the church. We need to take it seriously. We, we have to get serious about this because it's really no joke. Like, it's a marker of our faith. And, and he's going to essentially say, like, do everything you can to not hurt people here in the community of faith. Do everything you can to fight for unity here. And then he'll basically say, but most likely you'll continue to hurt people in the church. Like most likely that will continue to happen. Look at verse 15 for next week. If your brother sins against you, is what, he, is what we're gonna dive into next week. And so Matthew gives us some directives as to how to confront each other when that happens. And next week, we'll deal with that. And so he's going to go, okay, but you're gonna struggle in your confrontations with one another. And then he's gonna say, here's what's gonna happen after you confront each other and you deal with your relational conflict. Like, you actually have to be a people that forgive. And then you look at verse 1 through 14, it's all about getting serious about our relational character, like our character flaws, acknowledging them. But then in verses 15 through 20 that we'll be in next week, it's about how we confront other people when they're, they're, there's con conflict going on in relationship with other believers. And then verses 21 through 35, he begins explaining the necessity of mercy and forgiveness and it's an amazing section of scripture. Like as hardcore as it sounds, it's actually an amazing passage that we need to take very seriously. And Matthew sort of piles all of this together in one big thought for us. And so to recap a little bit, I want you guys to remember, go back with me a little bit. Jesus has been on this journey towards Jerusalem. Like he's coming into his last weeks of, uh, of life. He's about to lose his life, to die this brutal death on the cross for us, to be raised again. 
But he's been essentially ha- uh, like inviting and preparing these disciples to come along with him. To, he's been inviting them into this way of life that's so radically different than what they've ever known before. So in, in short, Jesus is sort of training them to have a different lens by which they see the world. He, he's training them to, to have a different lens by which they see people, a different lens by which they even look at their future. And Jesus is flipping everything upside down. And so discipleship, following Jesus, means allowing your value system to be turned over. We can't model our value system off of what the world has set for us. We model our value system based on the words and the life of Jesus, and it looks 100% different. It's like a 180-degree difference from that of the world that's flipped upside down. We've continued to talk about this upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And so this process, like it takes time, and Jesus developing these disciples. And if you recall from the very beginning of the story, Jesus sort of comes onto the scene. He calls his disciples. He starts announcing that there's this new kingdom vision, this new kingdom plan that he's initiating. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's actually here. You need to repent because it's here. And then what does Jesus do? He starts going around and healing people, like all over the place. And he's getting really famous, like his fame is rising. People are starting to know who he is. They're hearing about the healings and the the odd things that Jesus is doing that just are so different culturally than what they're used to. And then Jesus climbs up onto this mountaintop in the early part of of Matthew, the book of Matthew. And like a good teacher or rabbi, Jesus kind of props himself up on this mountaintop And he sits down and he delivers one of his most famous sermons in Matthew chapter four and five. And you remember how he he sort of launches into it. You've got Jesus on this mountaintop. All these people are starting to get interested in Jesus. They're wanting to know what Jesus is all about, what he stands for. They're very curious. And he starts to describe his kingdom vision, like the way he actually wants the world to work as a result of his kingdom invading it. And he essentially describes what it means to have a meaningful good life as a follower of Jesus on this earth. And what does Jesus say? The first thing out of Jesus' mouth in that sermon is blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, which is like, what? And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He said, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he starts saying these things, and it's just radically different than any other kingdom vision that these people have been pitched at this time, because every other kingdom vision is something like this. Blessed are those who get the job done. Blessed are those who are intelligent. Blessed are those who aren't afraid. Blessed are are, are those who can muscle their way through things. And Jesus' vision is completely different. It's totally countercultural to what they're used to. That he's not going to be the king of the kingdom that they all thought he would be. It's a completely different vision. And so the disciples, they just don't get it. I mean, understand that. As Jesus is saying this to them, they can't make sense of what it is that Jesus is saying. And so he says, if you don't get this, if you, if you misread this, and they do, and you think about a different kind of kingdom vision, you think about success in a different way, then not only do you sort of misread Jesus, but you actually misread people. You mistreat people. And so you see that coming out here with the disciples at the very beginning of chapter 18. These guys have been hearing Jesus essentially say, up is down, winning is losing, redemption comes through suffering, 
And where does their mind go in verse one? The disciples come to Jesus saying, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because the kingdom that he's presenting, they do not understand. They're probably thinking, okay, he's, like, he's been talking about going to Jerusalem, he's been talking about dying, like maybe there's some like vacancies available, like we can get the spot up, like Jesus, how do we become greatest? And so they're asking this question about prominence, right? How, how do we become prominent in the kingdom? How do we become great in the kingdom? And the question strikes at the heart of how they still misunderstand discipleship. Because what are they wanting to know? Jesus, who are the most important people? Who, who has the most influence, Jesus? What's the org chart look like? What's the pecking order in your church? Like, isn't that interesting? Like, can you imagine Jesus's face after everything he's been saying about suffering and denying self? He's been saying all this stuff, and then they ask him, like, Jesus, what's the org chart look like? How do I get to the top of the list? It's like, Jesus probably didn't use these words. Are you dumb? You know, like, let's go back to square one. Like, we've already gone through all of this. And so what does Jesus do at this point? Jesus grabs a visual aid. And so Jesus, he, he sort of changes the style up. He reaches for this kid. He grabs this living, breathing visual aid that's standing there with him. He grabs this little kid. He puts the kid in front of them. And they're all thinking about prominence. They're thinking about influence and how to be the greatest, like how they can be cool. How can they be liked? How, how can they be considered really important in the community of faith? And then Jesus grabs a child and places this child front and center in front of them. And he says this, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Confusing, again. So why the little kid? Well, why did Jesus bring this kid into the mix? Any parents in the room? Is it because the kid is innocent? Are, are your kids innocent? Like, there's not really a pure child, you know what I mean? Like, they all have some sort of devious nature that they were born with. So, Is it because the kids are so teachable? Your parents in the room, how teachable are your kids? Like not very. Sometimes kids can be so stinking stubborn, aren't they? My mom used to always rant and rave about how stubborn I was as a kid and she had to read some book by Dobson in the, in the 70s, like how to break a strong-willed child and that was me. I was like, <laughs> I was the case study for that book, I guess. But, But this isn't the reason. It wasn't because they're teachable. It wasn't because they're innocent. And so why would Jesus bring a kid into this? Why is Jesus bringing kids in front of them and saying, be like this? Why is Jesus doing this? And here's what I think it is. Children have very low status. Like particularly in Jesus' day in, in ancient Palestine, in their culture, kids were sort of at the bottom, right? They didn't have a ton of significance culturally. And I know what you're thinking, like, in our culture, it's different, right? We elevate kids. I mean, like, 
how many of you have bumper stickers on your car, like proud parent of a honor roll student at whatever? Like we, ha- we live in this culture that is like elevating kids. But bear in mind that kids still don't hold a place of prominence in our current culture. They, they still don't hold that place. They're not the influencers in our community. They aren't the ones holding leadership offices and influencing our cities and our state and our country. Like by society standards, they actually don't have that much significance in, in, in leadership over um, our culture. And so if you came into the church, for instance, and, and you're thinking like, how do I get a particular title? Like, how do I get involved at the church? Like, I want to move my way up the ladder. Le, the, up the ladder. I want to have a position of prominence. Like, I want, to, I want respect. Like, I want to have a title in the church. You probably don't go to the kids' ministry to go find that, do you? Like, that, in, in our culture, it's like the adults are the ones that have, like, the respect and the prominence. They're the ones that we sort of elevate, and we are the ones fighting for a position, fighting for a place, fighting to be known. But if that's what you're looking for, again, like you don't go mingling around with the kids' ministry to try to find your place. But here's the beauty of this point that Jesus is making in this, is that kids have a low status. And when I say that, I'm not saying that like negatively. It's like kids, there's something about kids. They're not looking to be made known. Like they have this low status. They have a a lot of issues, but none of the kids came here this morning trying to figure out who was going to talk to them and who wouldn't, like us adults do. Every conversation we go into is fighting for position and trying to figure out how to level up and like gain respect in somebody's eyes and get to know the right people. Like if anything, Kids came in here and their only worry is like, do I get goldfish this morning? Um, is he going to preach as long as he did last week? Like, you know, can you tell the dude to shorten it a little bit? My attention span is, isn't as long as he'd like. Um, but the beauty of kids is that they're not thinking about status. They don't care. And the reality is for you and I, oftentimes we do. We care very much about what other people think of us. Kids have all kinds of flaws, but they're not thinking about their status. They're not thinking about the lineup and the org chart and how they can make their way up and be powerful. Like, that's the beauty of it. That's Jesus' point. So if you're talking about the community of God's people, which is who Jesus is describing in this passage, who would be the first people to not really care where they line up in in prominence? It would be the kids. And then who would be the next group after the kids? According to Jesus, it would be the people that regardless of age are the most humble. And they're not thinking about self-importance at all, like making their way. Like it's not even on their radar. And so what Jesus does here is he doesn't condemn ambition. He doesn't condemn the idea of wanting to be great. Like we are actually all great in Christ Jesus. But he just redirects and redefines your idea of great. It's part of that upside down kingdom. Like what you thought was great, what you've been working for, and what the world has told you is greatness is actually not greatness in my kingdom because greatness starts at the bottom. Greatness starts with humility. And so apparently for Jesus, Jesus thinks greatness and ambition that's shaped by the kingdom of heaven is actually someone who willingly lowers themselves. 
Remember the question. They're, they're like, who's going to be really great and really important in your kingdom? And Jesus' answer to them is that they're going to be the people that aren't thinking about being great. <laughs> Those will be the ones that are actually great in the kingdom. They're, they're just willingly always seeing how they can lower themselves, how much they can serve and build somebody else up. Like it's radically different than how the world views it. And so it's someone that's not concerned with status or control or authority or power over people, people who don't even care about their social prominence. And to be clear, it's not even the, just the aggressive, loud people. Like we live in a culture that I think sometimes what we tend to think is that the people who get authority and power are the loud, aggressive people, right? They're the ones who are fighting their way and they're making, they're making their way known. They're the ones that always get elevated to places of power. But actually, it's the quiet ones as well. So it's not about whether or not you're, you're loud or you're quiet, like the quiet ones are just as concerned about these things. They're just as concerned about positioning. Like that's why they don't speak up oftentimes because they're worried about what others may think about them. We're all sort of worried about status. And so there's different ways to kind of flex this issue of self-importance. And so here's the thing. Again, the, the disciples just do not get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. And because they don't get it, because we all have such pride issues, we have this obsessive concern over our status, what are we prone to do? We're always so concerned about them. And so what are we prone to do? When, when that's what's fueling our motivations, we actually end up hurting each other. And so when these things flare up, it's like now it's just pinned us against somebody else and now we're actually working against somebody else and doing what we can to try to level up and get past another people. We're prone to hurt each other. And Jesus sort of anticipates this in this passage. He knows that we're gonna mistreat each other, that we're gonna overlook one another, that there's gonna be neglect and abuse and misuse each other. And we're gonna look at each other not as people to be loved and cared for, but we're gonna look at each other as people to use in such a way that we can end up getting what it is we want, whether it's money, respect, power, and Jesus sort of anticipates all of that, and what he says is this. He goes into this incredibly like sobering warning in verse five. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name does what? Receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Anybody happy they came here this morning? Like, that's a really uplifting passage. So first, Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, whoever sees people differently, when you look around at home, at school, at work, in the community, what is it that you see? Do you see little insignificant people as significant, like that's what God hopes for us. Because if you see people that way, if you see low status people and you welcome them and you show them great hospitality, it's as though you're doing that to Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying like, wow, do you guys get this? When you serve them, when you have humility, when you lay yourself down, it's as if you're serving, you're honoring me. Because then he goes on uh, to say, and it gets kind of gnarly, um, whoever causes a little one, and who's the little one? Any help? 
the disciple, right? He's referring back to the disciples. Whoever causes the little one, a disciple, someone who's following Jesus, somebody in the church, he says, whoever causes the disciple, another church member, to do what? The ESV uses the word sin. The NIV uses the word stumble. And I want you to, to, to stop there for a second. Ask yourselves that question. Do you cause someone, another believer, somebody within the church, to stumble? Maybe it's because of your mouth. Maybe it's because of gossip or malicious behavior. Maybe it's because of slander. Jesus goes on to say, if you cause a disciple to sin or to stumble, it would be better for you to strap a great millstone. Now, a millstone was a round circular stone that they would use to grind grain. It's huge. Like, you have no chance. You strap that thing to your neck, you walk out, you're, you're hosed. You know what I mean? And so he's saying, it would be better for you to strap that thing around your neck and walk out in the lake and drown yourself, is basically what he's saying. Not a super fun, lighthearted text, right? But what he's saying is kind of terrifying because Jesus is just being brutally honest. And Jesus is kind of anticipating what's actually going to happen in the church. It seems like he's thinking about the days when the church community, who misreads his kingdom ethics, get all caught up in the rat race and these distorted values of the world, and they begin to treat one another poorly, which is right where we find ourselves today, fractured and splintered, because we're so caught up in the, the, the things of the world that are fractioning mankind that we've allowed it to bleed over into the church, and what we don't allow is for us to see where is Christ in this and how is he unifying the church, not where are the things that divide us and how do we position ourselves and move up and like gain power and influence and go down the list of all the things that the world is trying to attain. When that comes into the church, of course, you're gonna have backfighting and quarreling and gossip and all these things going on because we've allowed what the world's model is, the kingdom model that the world has established to take precedence in the church. And Jesus is saying it's totally different. It's totally different. And so not to, not to sound pessimistic, but it seems as though Jesus is kind of telling them that these things will happen and, and that people will do all kinds of awful things to one another, even within the church. And it may even get to a point where people struggle, struggle in continuing to connect to a community of faith altogether. It's like Jesus knew where believers would be at today. And I can tell you as a pastor, there, there are people all the time trying to recover from their past church hurts their past experiences with another believer, trying to recover from years of damage, and they're just like trying to figure out what it looks like to get their feet wet and make their way back into the church, but they're so hesitant because of what's been done or said to them in the past. And it's terrible, and Jesus knows it. But Jesus also anticipates it, and he has this idea that when he says stumble, what he's doing is he's painting this picture for us of two disciples. So imagine you and me, and we're both trying to follow Jesus. We're walking the path that he's laid out for us. And he's saying, as you're walking alongside of one another, it's as if, it's as if you're occasionally dropping rocks right in front of the other person to get them to stumble and trip up. And it's making hard for them, and it's making it hard for them to continue down the path of discipleship. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, are you doing that? Like, are you literally intentionally tripping people up 
in their discipleship, in their walk with me. And Jesus says, if you're doing that, and he says, and if you don't care that you're doing that, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck, throw yourself in the lake. And what's crazy to me about this passage is honestly how serious Jesus is. Like he's dead serious. He goes on to say in verse seven, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Like Jesus, this woe, Jesus is literally like lamenting and he's crying out. Like that, that, that woe is like this exclamation of grief on Jesus' Jesus's behalf because it breaks his heart to watch sin divide people from him and it breaks his heart to watch sin divide people from one another. And then he goes on to say, for it's necessary that temptations come. And then he goes even deeper and he says, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so Jesus says, this is so sad. Like our world is so full of this. It's so full of wrong values and wrong views of people. And because of these wrong values, it's just gonna be hard to natu naturally for people to follow after me. It's just gonna be hard for people to be Christians. And that's what he's saying because of the condition of the world that we're in. And so Jesus sort of anticipates it. He, look what he says. He says, for it's necessary. I mean, the, the way the whole world is set up, like the broken nature of the world, the, the way it works in the marketplace, the way it works out in marriages, the way it works out in social circles, the way it works out, Jesus says, it's just inevitable that you guys are gonna end up hurting each other. But then when he goes even further, he says, but woe to the other one. And he's saying this, I know you're gonna get hurt, but do you know what saddens me even more than the fact that you're hurt? is that you perpetuate it. Like, so somebody does something to you, and it hurts, and you are wounded by it, and you know that it wounds you, and you struggle through your own discipleship, and you work it out over time, and then you just turn around, and you perpetuate the cycle, and you dish it out to somebody else, and he's like, it's so, it's so sad. Like, it's hard enough for us to follow Jesus this day and age. It's hard enough to allow our values to be flipped over in his kingdom. Like, why make it harder on ourselves? And as I've been thinking about this all week, I've just realized Jesus is so right. When I leave this community and I go into my week throughout this next week, it's hard enough for me to try to follow Jesus in this world. And then what's so sad is that Jesus' people in the context and in the confines of the church make it even more difficult. And this is sobering because even though he knows hurting each other is actually gonna happen, he still commands a heart of responsibility and a sense of agency to actually work on it. He says this in verses eight and nine, and if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, he says, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the hell of fire. So I want you to stop for a moment and consider this. Why is Jesus going into this application for me and for you with regards to hurting each other? Like it's so dramatic, it seems super strange. Cut it off, pluck it out. Like why is Jesus talking about hand and foot and eye? Like is that really gonna help you? Like if you cut off the hand, does it fix it? If you pluck the eyeball out, does it actually fix it? Is it really gonna help you? Because back in Matthew chapter 15, 
Jesus explains where evil comes from. The, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they're, they're talking about defilement and they're talking about hand washing. And Jesus is like, look at what you do and what you touch. Like that's not actually what defiles you. He said it's what's in your heart. It's what's coming out of you that defiles you is what Jesus says. And so Jesus knows he's already explained to us that what's really rotten about us is actually down in the heart. And so why would he say cut off your hand? Why is he saying cut off your foot? Why is he saying rip out your eyes? If you have a, a pattern, a habit in your life of hurting people and you see that pattern, what Jesus is saying is do everything you can to cut it out. Like stop. And why is he saying that when he's not really getting at the root issue with regards to the heart? And my question to you this morning is, when you read that, does he have your attention? <laughs> do you stop and think like, wow, that's kind of gnarly. Like, do you have a visual in your head of like chopping off your hand, plucking out your eyeballs, like doing what, like we all can get really graphic and we can see this picture and understand how serious Jesus is. It's gross. It's shocking, like it's dramatic. And that's the point, because I think Jesus anticipates like our true and typical response. He, he knows that this idea that we should not hurt each other in the church, um, that it's actually happening. He knows that that is, uh, that, that when we say like that, that, that there's a truth, when we, when we say this is true, like, yes, in the church, we shouldn't be the ones harming one another, we shouldn't be the ones participating in gossip, or whatever it is, he knows that eventually we won't really take that seriously, and we'll allow those things to continue to creep in. He, he knows that even though we say that we believe this as a church, like, if I was to ask all of you one-on-one, -on -one, do you believe that we should resist this kind of behavior in the church? Do you believe that we should fight for unity, that we should fight for relationship and community in the church? If I was to ask you all one-on-one, 100% of you would say, amen, yes. But then we still go on hurting one another. This last week, um, I, I had this conversation. It was interesting that this was the, the sermon I was preparing this week, and I get this. I called somebody, actually. Unrelated thing, a guy I haven't talked to in 10 years. And, um, and I called him to ask him a question about something, his professional opinion. And he answers, he's really curt and short with me. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but he was just kind of odd. And we, we have this conversation. He, he you know, gives me the answer that I was looking for. He says, you know, good to hear from you, talk to you later, bye. And then he hangs up. And I'm like, that was just so weird. That's not like him. Five minutes later, he calls me back. And he goes, I got to be honest with you. He's like, 10 years ago, this happened. These words were exchanged. This situation went down. And I've literally been holding that against you for 10 years. He's like, every time, he said, every time I see your name, every time I see, uh, like, you name it, whatever would trigger it, like, I would start to think back on these situations. And, uh, and he's like, and when you called, it was as if, like, I knew it was something that I needed to deal with. And so I called you back just to tell you, this is how I felt, like, right or wrong, this is how I felt. And, and, um, and, I, and we talked about it for, like, 10 or 15 minutes on the phone, like, there was like misunderstanding, like all kinds of weird stuff, but the enemy has been at play for 10 years in this guy's life. And I said, I'm so sorry. 
like, that was not how I intended for that to go down, obviously. Like, I love you and your family. Like, I'm so sorry that happened. And we had this amazing combo. I get off the phone. I go home that night, and I'm just, like, torn up about it all night. I'm just like, I, I, I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe that the enemy had that grip for 10 years. And so I sent him this long text. I'm like, I, I know who we've already talked, but, like, I, I really just need to ask for your forgiveness. Like, there's no place for this in the church. And whatever I need to do to make this right, I'm more than willing to do that. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm having this conversation to him, like, this is how God intended for the church to function. What the enemy wants is you to hold on to those things for 10 years to wreak havoc on your heart, that every time you see that person, hear about that person, hear about something that they're associated with, it causes it to get re-stirred up within you, and it causes the chasm to grow even further. And Jesus came to actually destroy the chasm, to eradicate it, to bring you together. We as the church are the ones who fight for this because we actually believe there's value in confrontation. If you would have told me 20 years ago that I would be a pastor and the majority of my work as a pastor would be stepping into people's messes and trying to help people love one another, I'd have been like, no thank you. 20 years later, like that, ask any of our pastoral staff. We just had this conversation this week. Angela and I, like, man, it's all like, This is what we do. We step into conflict, believe Jesus is bigger, believe that we're better as a result of hitting it on the head and praying and seeking the Lord and watching him destroy those walls. Like there's something about walking away from those situations and just being like, bring it devil. You know, like this is, I'm kicking you straight in the teeth when Jesus takes this thing over and brings unity. Like there's something amazing about the work that Jesus does in the midst of this, but we are convinced that we can't have those conversations. And so, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your last seven days, like your last week. And, and I would say that like, we have an amazing church. You're amazing people that I trust love Jesus and are following him faithfully, faithfully 24-7 every minute of every day, right? You guys are awesome. But in our small church here in North Idaho, how many hurtful words do you think were spoken within this room in the last seven days? to each other, to our spouses, friends, to other believers? How much gossip do you think happened in the last seven days? How many little things were said that were not building someone up at all, but actually tearing somebody down? How many times do you think? 10, 100, 1,000? Like, how many, like, I know for my own life how many that is. Multiply that by 400, you know? Like, there's a ton of them. Now, the follow-up to that question is this. How many times do you think within this group in the last week, people followed those conversations or those words or whatever it was, the, the, the injustice that they had done or, um, to somebody else? How many times do you think it was followed up with a sense of urgency and repentance? How many times do you think there was text messages sent and phone calls that were made, meetings that were set up, that, where, where someone literally sat somebody else down and said, listen, I said this, and what I said was wrong. It was hurtful. Like, you weren't there. I didn't say it to your face. Like, I take this seriously. And, and if that was to come back and to hurt you, it would actually devastate me that I had caused you to stumble, and so I want to make it right. Will you forgive me? Because I would tend to think like if there's a thousand circumstances that happened in the last week, there's probably not a thousand of those situations where we went back to the people and made things right. There's a deficit. 
and we know that they don't match up. And the reality, the amazing thing is this, is that I don't think, I think Jesus knows that they don't match up as well. And we sometimes say, take these things so casually, like we know it's true, but we still act casually about it as though it's not that big of a deal. But just in case you don't think he's being serious enough, there's more to this passage. He lays out this parable in verses 10 through 14. He says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Perish. Jesus, in this passage, he references these little ones again. We're talking about disciples. We're talking about believers, people in the church. And what's the the word despise that Jesus is using there? Like, are we really hating each other? Like, it seems like a really harsh word. But we can't count ourselves as excused because the actual phrase that Jesus meant when he uses that word despise is to look down on somebody. He's saying, see to it. He's saying, seriously, do whatever you can in your power to not look down on another believer. Like, that's the first sentence. But he's asking this sort of deep and invasive question, right? And the way you should read this is he's going full-fledged daddy defensive mode on his disciples at this point. He's like getting in their face. He's like this protective dad, and he's getting in the disciples' faces, and he's going full-fledged protective mode and the way they judge people, like, and, and they, they, their misguided views of people, like, here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, when you think of someone in the community of faith who's struggling, and when I say struggle, I mean that word astray that he uses there in the parable. And so Jesus is, is putting into your head someone who's literally dealing with lies in their head. Somebody who's literally dealing with a fault that they have, a mistake that they made. Somebody who's stuck. Somebody who's lonely, confused. Somebody who right now is struggling. And he's putting that image in your head in this passage. And this is somebody that feels lost and confused. And he's saying, when you think about that person, put that person in your head right now. When you think of that person, how do you feel? Do you feel better than them? Do you not like them? Are you bothered by their presence? Like, how do you feel about that person that's struggling and they're walking discipleship? Do you feel a sense of superiority? Because superiority, because I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm going through something in life, I'll look at it, somebody else and be like, oh, it's not that bad, you know? That person, <laughs> at least I'm not as bad as that person is. And we sort of place ourselves above them and saying like, yeah, at least I don't have to deal with what that person's gone through. Like, I've got it better than they do. And Jesus is saying, if and when you do this, he needs us to understand that they actually have this heavenly advocate with their father who's always pleading their case when he talks about these angels. Like how amazing that is, that when we hurt somebody, God's already at work providing the advocate they need to speak life. Like this is, 
This is where we get the whole idea of like kids having these guardian angels. But what he's saying is that real disciples actually have an advocate in heaven. And so when you look down on somebody because you think you're better than them or you gossip about them, do you realize that there's a heavenly advocate saying, don't listen to that person. I got your back. (laughs) Don't take that word to heart. Like how amazing is it that God is working for us in in those situations? And Jesus leaves the 99 that are doing okay and he goes after the one that's having a hard time and it's as if Jesus is saying, if you know how passionate I am for struggling people, then you better get really serious about being the person who caused them to struggle. He takes it seriously. He's like, I had to leave the 99, then go go get the one that got hurt by you and that's what he's getting across. Like, don't continue to repeat that. I'll continue to chase him down. By God's grace, he's still going after him. By God's grace, he's going after some of you that have been severely wounded and you hear the voices, you hear the lies and Jesus is continuing to put in your head, don't listen to him. Drown that voice out. That's not who you are. That's not the truth. Who are you in me? Like he's continuing to be your advocate. And the one that's speaking in this passage, Jesus, the one that's offering up this warning and teaching Jesus isn't going to stop his march to Jerusalem to die and to absorb all the punishment for all the wrong, hurtful things that we do. He's actually going to die. He's going to take it all upon himself. He's going to raise up new life because he's going to make the impossible things in my life possible, in your life possible, the things that nobody else said could happen, the healing that nobody else could said could take place, the relationships that nobody else said could be reconciled. And that's why you have to realize and keep the proper story. It's not the story that the world's telling us. And so my question for you this morning is, would you be willing to examine your own heart? Next week, as we dive into conflict and we talk about how we do this, the process we use for conflict resolution in the church, the first question to ask is like, are you guilty of dishing it out or have you been the recipient of it? And what does reconciliation look like? Examine your heart this morning. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. Are there any of you in this room that realize that what you're doing in your life, whether that's hurt that you're causing or a perpetual pattern that you see in your life or a struggle that you can't get past, are there any of you that realize that you need supernatural help to put an end to something that you just feel caught in? Is there any of us that you need God to sort of eradicate your obsession over appearance and prominence? Like you're just always worried about where you're at in the org chart and how much respect and power you have. And maybe some of you just need God to remove some sort of offensive behavior or pattern in your life. But my question is like, do we take this seriously? Because it's really easy to read through the Bible and skim these passages because these ones hurt a little. (laughs) These ones cause you to stop and go, do I have something I have to deal with? Do I have to recognize something in my own heart this morning? And this is what I love about teaching verse by verse through through books of the Bible is we don't have the luxury of skirting around the stuff you don't want to hear about to give you the funny and fun stuff. This is serious, and Jesus takes it seriously. And so I'll leave you with that question this morning. 
if you examine your own heart, are there things that need to be dealt with? Jesus, by his grace, bled and died upon that cross and rose again in order to grant you power that you could not find yourself. To step into the messiest of situations and watch him reconcile. To watch him be honored in the midst of intense conflict. And I will tell you the best moments of my life have been dealing with conflict that I skirted for ages, years. Best moments of my life were crying over desks and tables with people asking for forgiveness or them asking for forgiveness from me and realizing the power of the God we serve. That you don't have to live your life in bondage to irreconcilable differences. Like that just should not even come from our mouth as followers of Jesus. I'll agree to disagree. It's just irreconcilable differences. No. You're going to spend eternity with these people. (laughs) Probably good to figure it out now, don't you think? So let let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your church. I thank you for the power that only you have. It comes through your death and your resurrection to actually reconcile. I thank you, Jesus, that um, even for those of us in this room, myself included, that have said things, done things to harm others, I thank you, Jesus, that there's an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, to humble ourselves, um, Jesus, and yet we also realize that that's a marker of a follower of Jesus, somebody who's lower, somebody who humbles themselves, a little one. I pray that we could become like children in that, Jesus, and not be fighting for our position or our way, but submit ourselves to you and humble ourselves, Jesus, that we would be the greatest in your kingdom because we take the lowest approach and humble ourselves. Jesus, I pray for your blessing upon each person in this room, and I do pray, God, as we examine our hearts, that there be those in this room that would take that seriously and look deep into their hearts at the things that you want to deal with and begin the process of ironing that out, having those conversations and allowing you to be honored in the messiest of situations in their life. Would you be glorified, Jesus? Bless your church in Jesus' name, amen.